Some years ago, I was <coughs> taking a hike in the forest of Maine in the middle of the winter, and I was several hours out from the camp that I was staying in, and I came over a knoll, or came up on a knoll, and on the top of the knoll, I met a deer. And the deer was standing, had been walking slowly towards me and I walking towards it. And we were about 20 feet apart, really close. And I could see that as soon as I came into view, the deer stopped and it went on hold. (laughs) And its ears were twitching and its eyes were just swimming with activity and its tail was doing its flickering thing, and its nostrils were uh, quivering to pick up whatever it did. And I could see this extraordinary aliveness in this being, this sensitive awareness. And the deer sensed something, but didn't know yet whether it was something to fear or something to be at ease with. And so it was on alert. But in that alertness, it was very still. And the quality of stillness and alertness, the qualities of stillness and alertness, were equally balanced. After a very long and patient observation, I stood still. The deer began again walking and doing its little browse and whatever it was doing. And it was an exquisite display of the energy, the tranquility, the aliveness, the alertness that free wild beings possess. Our practice here is like stalking ourself, being so careful and so alert and so precise with all of our senses, that we notice everything. But not because we're anxious or uh, hypervigilant, but because there is a balance in our minds and in our bodies between tranquility and stillness and energized alertness. Vipassana, or insight, as Joseph has suggested, is the practice of freedom. (coughs) Last night, Joseph spoke about the four mind turnings, reflections that shift our perspective 
of our life. So that we then feel the need or an urgency to investigate the Dharma, to practice the Dharma. And those reflections really are expose the truth, the truth of impermanence, the truth of or the fact that we have a precious human birth, the truth of the law of karma, cause and effect. Our practice here is to discover these truths for ourselves. The Buddha's path to awakening as a bodhisattva over innumerable lifetimes culminated in the perfection of the paramis, ten qualities of an awakened heart, patience, generosity, renunciation, equanimity or balance of mind, wisdom, loving-kindness. And each of these qualities of heart has one requirement for its foundation, and that is mindfulness, presence of mind, or awareness, without which none of these qualities can come into being. So tonight I want to speak about mindfulness, the practice that we've undertaken here. So what is mindfulness? We've all been practicing it today. What have we discovered about it? In the text it's said that mindfulness manifests as the power of observation. When we're mindful, we observe. We bring our mind into contact with our life. We come face to face with our experience. Sometimes it seems that we have to make mindfulness happen. We have to do something in order to be mindful. And yet there are other times when we discover that in doing nothing we are equally mindful, equally aware, maybe more observant. Awareness or mindfulness happens when we are undistracted, occurs when we're not preoccupied with something else. When our minds are not lost in thoughts and fantasies and plans and memories, and we come face to face with our experience, it's not the face to face of a confrontation, although sometimes it feels like it. Rather, it's the face to face of an intimate embrace, 
an embrace or an intimacy, a contact, a connection that allows <coughs> that experience without frightening it, without intimidating it, without overpowering it with judgment or fear. But it's a coming to a coming into connection with whatever's happening in a way that allows it to happen without judgment, without pushing it away, without expecting more of it or demanding that it perform. We could say that mindfulness is a participatory awareness. As it's happening, we know it. As the leg is moving in walking, we know it. As the breath is entering or leaving the body, we know it. We participate by knowing. A helpful attitude to cultivate this quality of participatory awareness is to ask yourself, what is this? What is this experience? And to allow yourself to get beneath the idea of what it is, the breath or walking, and to actually feel it, to actually come in contact with, to connect with the experience. It's helpful to cultivate a curiosity about this precious human birth. What is it, really? Albert Einstein said, I think that people generally overestimate me, but I don't consider myself superior or different from any other man or woman. I am not more gifted than anybody else. I am just more curious and maybe more patient. We would do well to cultivate curiosity and patience in our investigation of this precious human birth. One of the conditions that most supports mindfulness, that most supports awareness, is recognizing what we're aware of. And we cultivate that by noting or labeling, as the instruction is. Because labeling picks out of the multiplicity of things going on the one that is most drawing our attention and says, aha, this is hearing, this is breathing in, this is breathing out. So that we are not lost in a chaotic tumble of events, experiences, not overwhelmed by a flood of sensory stimulation, 
But learning to observe in this way is not easy. Learning to notice one thing in one moment. Our lives are generally so full and so fast that we have to experience two or three or more dozen things at once to keep up. But learning to observe carefully is a lesson that we need to undertake here. A century ago there was a famous naturalist that came through America speaking about glaciers and what he'd learned by observing glaciers. Glaciers move slow. And yet he learned a lot about them by noticing how they moved. So he was very popular. Harvard University asked him to teach there. And as a result, many students wanted to him as their mentor. But he was demanding. And there was an interview process for being selected by him. One student wrote this. When the initial interview was at an end, the professor, Louis Agassiz, asked the student when he would like to begin. And the student said that he'd begin immediately. Whereupon he was presented with a dead fish, a very long dead, pickled and evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by Agassiz from one of the jars that lined his shelf. And the fish was placed before the student, and he was told to look at it. And Agassiz left the room. Samuel Scudder was that student, and he described the experience as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He wrote, In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed. An hour. Another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I was not able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought occurred to me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover one new feature after another in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. <laughs> Scudder continued, I was piqued. I was mortified still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly and when toward its close the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, <laughs> Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, 
look, look, was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value with which he could not buy and with which he could not part. What we are asking you to do here is to look and look again and again and again. Not because we don't believe you aren't looking, but because there's more to see, even in the breath, even in the walking, in the meal, in the bathing, in whatever it is you do, there's more to see. But this kind of looking you can see requires um, a diligence and a carefulness that is maybe unique to us. And one yogi calls it stalking herself, walking so carefully that she can get close enough to herself. But it takes a firm resolution in the mind. It doesn't happen accidentally. We don't become carefully observant accidentally. There's nothing in our conditioning that's going to make it happen accidentally. It's something that we must cultivate, something that we must um, direct the mind towards with some persistence without expectation, because we don't really know what's going to happen. We don't really know what the next breath will bring, or the next step. Here in the retreat, Continuity of intention and continuity of attention are the most powerful support for discovering the truth, for seeing the way things are. When I say continuity, I'm talking about the, of course, the moment-to-moment that we try to be mindful in a sitting, in the formal sittings, in the formal walkings. But I'm also talking about the continuity between sitting and walking, between walking and lunch, between lunch and nap, between nap and bathing, bathing and walking, walking and sitting, so that the whole day becomes a continuous observation, a participation in our life, so that we don't um, drift off, that we don't forget to pay attention. It's helpful to cut our speed dramatically, so that we can see more of what is going by. 
but because we live in a large community in a small place. Going slow is fine everywhere but the lunch line. <laughs> or whenever we're in mm, the flow of the community, lunch and toilets and coming into the coat room and out, it's best to use some broader awareness <laughs> so that we can um, be respectful of others. But when we are reasonably alone, slow is better for the most part. Another powerful support for continuity of awareness, continuity of attention, is to maintain silence. We've asked that you all undertake silence, other than the essential speaking with one of us or, if necessary, speaking in the office. But for those of you who've been here before, you know there are ways to leak. There's ways to leak, that our attention leaks out through little gestures of communication with one another. Whether it's notes on the board, uh, eye contact, uh, gifts on the Zafu, or whatever it is. It doesn't sound like much, but it's a leak. And our attention and the continuity of our energy and momentum leaks out with that activity. A large part of the structure and the format of a retreat like this is to is, is designed to build up energy, to build up the energy that is required, really to see through the veils and the illusions of our life. And it takes a lot of energy, a tremendous mental energy, to cut through. And silence is one of the supports or the container for that energy. Since we have acquired this precious human birth, what is it we have acquired? How do we actually experience this human birth? We know we have a body, we know we have a mind, we know we have a personality, and all that. But beneath the appearance of our life is another world, something I discovered when I first went snorkeling on Maui, where I live. You look at the lake, or you look at the ocean, you look at a pond where you're going snorkeling, and you don't see a thing. You just see water. And you put on this little mask, and you put your head below the water, and there is another whole world there. terrain and beings 
that is completely invisible from the surface. Our life is like that. Beneath the appearance of our life, the relationships and the roles and the activity, there is another world. The inner world of experience of this mind and body. The Buddha said, for the purification of beings, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain, sadness, for the realization of freedom, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the four foundations of mindfulness. That is quite a promise. for relief from pain and suffering of all types. Be mindful. If we could believe that, if we could really take in what that meant, what, what the promise, some would say a guarantee, is, how could we not at least try? for the abandonment of all your suffering and sorrow, whatever yours is, be mindful of the four foundations of mindfulness. And what are those four? The body and the mind. When the Buddha observed the body. Of course we have the appearance and male and female and color and shape and size and all that. But beneath the appearance, what do we actually know for ourselves experientially about the body? It's painful. It's pleasant. It's hard. It's soft, it vibrates, it pulsates, it hurts, it's tight, it's tense, it expands, it contracts, it gets warm, it gets cold. What else? What do we actually experience in the body? When you, when you pay attention to the, the breath, how do you experience the breath? Tingling, tightness, pressure, expanding, contracting. How do we experience walking? What, are the, what is the actual feeling of walking? Heaviness, trembling, uh, tightness, stretching, pressure, hardness, coolness, heat. But it takes a steadiness of mind, it takes a, contact, a depth of contact with the body to be able to feel that. <coughs> the Buddha talked about the body being experienced as 
hardness or softness, heat or coolness, movement, vibration, pulsation, and sometimes a sense of uh, cohesion or stickiness. <coughs> That's it, the body. Physicists are also discovering the same thing. Fritjof Capra, in his book, The Turning Point, says that subatomic particles are not made of any material substance. They have a certain mass, but this mass is a form of energy. And energy is activity. Subatomic particles, then, are bundles of energy or patterns of activity. When they get together, they make atomic and molecular structures, and they build up the macroscopic world that we all live in. And at the everyday level, the notion of a substance is quite useful. But at the atomic level, it makes no sense. Atoms consist of particles, and these particles are made of energy. When we observe them, we never see any substance. We observe a dynamic pattern of continually changing energy, a continuous, never-ending dance. Our body is a dance of energy. If we look carefully, we will discover this. The first foundation for mindfulness, the first foundation of mindfulness is the body. The second that the Buddha identified is the quality of pleasant or unpleasantness. Have you experienced anything but pleasantness or unpleasantness today? In a sense, we could say, Every experience we have is either subtly or grossly pleasant or unpleasant. And sometimes it's helpful to take a period of time in a sitting and to just identify each moment's experience as being pleasant or unpleasant. The third foundation for establishing mindfulness is the mind. Thinking, planning, narrating, commenting, judging, evaluating, fixing, figuring out, all of that vast uh, display of mental activity. We've seen plenty of that today. But have we considered that it's the place for establishing mindfulness? There's nothing wrong with thinking, planning, narrating, commenting, judging, evaluating, fixing, adjusting. It is the very place for establishing mindfulness. Sometimes we make thinking the enemy, or we somehow believe that Thinking is the enemy in practice. It isn't. But it takes a careful 
understanding and approach to the habit of thinking, the habits of worrying, the habits of anxiety, without judgment, to let them be. So that when we notice them, we don't mm, bat them away out of uh, aversion, or that we don't get seduced by them if they're pleasurable. The fourth foundation for mindfulness are the mental states, emotions, the hindrances, sleepiness, dullness, anxiety, desire, but also the more beautiful states of mind, concentration, tranquility, stillness, confidence, love. These two are the place for establishing mindfulness, for waking up, for observing this precious human birth. Over the days we will be expanding the field of attention to include these, all of these four foundations. For now we're using mostly the body, sounds, the breath, Mindfulness, this ability to observe, to be attentive, to feel, to know, serves the role of being an inward mentor. Because we look and observe so carefully, we see the way things are, truly. The mind becomes clear, it becomes straight, it becomes unable to be fooled, unable to be deceived. Mindfulness points out the truth, points out this this is the way it is. Sometimes that is comfortable and sometimes it isn't. As we move through our life, as we undertake the activities, decisions that we do, we justify them, we rationalize them, we explain them to suit our purpose. And sometimes when we come to look more carefully at our life, and we uncover these behaviors, these activities, and we see them without justification, without rationalization, without explanation, and we see them for what they really are, it can be very unpleasant. Sometimes we feel guilty. Sometimes we feel ashamed. Sometimes we feel humiliated. This review of our personal life, our personal history, happens. 
mindfulness acts as a guide to the truth so that we can put aside our judgments of ourselves and others and see truly the way things are. When I first went to Burma some years ago, I was working with Saito Upandita and we were seeing him at that time every day. And the first couple of weeks I was really gung-ho and really uh, avidly doing my practice. And I could see on a day-to-day that things were changing. Mindfulness was getting a little better, stillness was getting a little more, concentration was getting a little better, it was getting a little more sensitive, and I was very um, energized in my interviews. I'd go in and I'd be very excited about what I was seeing and discovering, and I would tell Upandita and he would say, yes, okay, good, keep going, keep going. And then one day, after I'd been there two weeks, two and a half weeks, practice fell apart. It just totally went to pieces. I couldn't, I couldn't find the breath, let alone follow it. I couldn't, I had no idea. It just felt like total chaos. Needless to say, my judgment of myself was that I must have done something wrong. And I didn't really want to go see Sayadaw that day. But my appointed time was two o'clock, so I went, and I got to the door of his cabin, and I just stuck my head in, and I said, uh, Sayadaw, I'm not going to come today. Practice not doing so good. And I thought I could get away. <laughs> I couldn't. And he said, what? what? What's going on? Come in, come in. And I said, uh, Practice is not going very good today. I, I, I'll, come, I'll come back tomorrow. And he said, come on, come on, come on. And this is really not typical Upandita, being very warm and gentle and come on, <laughs> tell me what's going on. But nevertheless, I got in and, and paid my respects, did my bows. And he said, well, what, what's going on with your practice? You've been doing really quite well. And I said, I don't know, I can't understand. It's just, it's chaos. It's just, you know, and then I described as best as I could what seemed to be a mess. And as I was describing this chaotic mess to him, he just lit up in this big grin. And he was so happy. And he said, you know, he says, I've been waiting for you to say that. He says, sometimes when a yogi thinks they have really good practice, the teacher listens and is careful and respectful, but knows that they could do better. And sometimes when the yogi comes in and they think their practice is really bad, the teacher listens and knows it's really good. And with that shift, or with that different perspective, or his perspective, I got that judgment of our own practice or of our own experience is totally unnecessary and usually harmful. Don't judge anything. 
that you experience. You may think it's good, you may think it's terrible. It doesn't matter. See it as it is, note it as you can, let it come, let it go. Can't stress it enough. But most of us find, and I say it because most of us sit in judgment of our experience constantly, and it's not helpful. It really undermines our confidence and commitment and energy. So when you find yourself judging, commenting, evaluating your practice, recognize that and put it aside. Let mindfulness show you the truth. You don't need to tell mindfulness what's true. In its role of being a mentor, mindfulness in seeing over and over again the stuff in our minds. Mindfulness is not blinded. It's not deceived by what's going on. And actually um, has the purpose or has the function of creating space around what might initially seem to be intolerable. One woman put it this way. She said, mindfulness gives me a spaciousness around my personal hysteria. And sometimes we can really get it that we're totally caught in our stuff and it's just driving us crazy. And awareness of it just creates a space around it. Mindfulness has the characteristic of remembering, not forgetting, attending to the present moment. We've all had the experience where we've been trying to be mindful, we've gotten lost in thought, lost in some fantasy or daydream, and suddenly we're back. Somehow we just drop out of the fantasy and we find ourselves back in the cushion. How did that happen? We didn't even know that we were lost and suddenly we're back. We didn't make any special effort. We didn't intend to become mindful at that moment. It just happened. Practice is to recognize those moments those moments when we drop out of fantasy and come into the present moment. Kala Rinpoche says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live as if in a dream floating along the stream of our life, enchanted by our internal dialogue. The personal history that we narrate to ourselves 
over and over and over again, keeping us enchanted, uh, entranced, as if uh, cast under a spell, explaining the way it is and why we are the way we are. Mindfulness wakens us from that inner dream. But in the process, we become disillusioned. We come out from under the illusion that we are spinning about ourselves. But to be without illusion is freeing. And it brings us into an authentic relationship to ourself. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda how to stop the internal dialogue. One Zen master here in the, in the West suggests cut thinking mind. Here, we just ask that you notice the internal dialogue, that you notice the thinking mind. And in the very noticing, we come out from under its power. We come out from under the trance. Without mindfulness, we are subject to the whim of circumstance, being blown to and fro without having an inner guide as a rudder, blindly following our mental habits, moving towards what's pleasant moving away from what's unpleasant, and being bewildered and entranced by what is neutral. Mindfulness acts as a rudder, a guide, a mentor, in this ebb and flow of experience. Nizagadatta Maharaj said that Truth is in the discovery, and to discovery there is no beginning and no end. Question your limits. Go beyond. For every discovery reveals new dimensions. The unknown has no limits, so set yourself apparently impossible tasks. This is the way. Whatever you believe to be your limit. here, in sitting, in walking, in sleeping, in eating, whatever you believe to be the most you can do, the furthest you can go, come to that point, come to that edge, 
come to that limit and take one more step. Take yourself over that, extend yourself beyond what you believe you can tolerate. This is the way we grow in mindfulness, by taking on more to be mindful of. Extending ourselves into the day in a way that in a week will cover every aspect of the day, every activity of the day. This process of coming to know this precious human life is sometimes painful, physically, emotionally. It demands a lot of us. And so we need to be careful and gentle. But we also need to be persistent and to come back again and again to begin again. They say that the flight of our dharmic life, the flight on, of our path to awakening, is carried on the wings of wisdom and compassion. This practice develops the personal knowledge of the way things are for us. It's um, a knowledge and an understanding that you can't get anywhere else. You can't read about yourself in any book. We can only sit with ourselves and discover this life to really know what it is for us to have this human life. Stonehouse was an old Chinese hermit, monk in the 14th century, and he said, you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice If water drips long enough, even rock will wear through. It's not true that thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine that their minds are hard. So if you have the judgment that I heard expressed today some, it's just too overwhelming, it's just too hard, it's just too um, slow, be patient and be persistent. Practice works. The foundation for our awareness, for our mindfulness, is being tranquil and alert with a clear, non-judgmental attention. It's the key to our freedom. But this balance between tranquility and alertness 
is refined through practice. The conditions in the format of the retreat support it, but we each must find for ourselves how the Buddha can sit like that, that rupa behind us, alert and tranquil at the same time. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified, sometimes it is smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. It's by Trungpa Rinpoche. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.